I want to remind you that these psalms that we're looking at through this year are extraordinary, ordinary days and looking at the psalms through the summer. That the psalms, um, the goal of this series is that the psalms rescue us from a preoccupation with ourselves by placing God in the midst of ordinary life, of what is very real life for us on a daily basis, so that we can be preoccupied with God in the midst. And so we're looking at these psalms. Now, that's a good reminder as we turn to Psalm 82 today, um, because there are so many go-to psalms. I had mentioned this a number of weeks back, that we have all these go-to psalms. Maybe Psalm 23 is probably our most famous of the go-to psalms, right? The Lord is my shepherd. Um, I found myself uh, just yesterday on a bicycle reciting that in my mind, the Lord is my shepherd. (laughs) Psalm 119 is the longest psalm. Psalm 117 is the shortest psalm. Psalm 121 inspires us to lift up our eyes to the hill. Psalm 46 reminds us, be still and know that I am God. But Psalm 82, that is not a go-to for many. And I would even say this, that's, that's not a go-to for many preachers. Because preachers get to the Psalms and we want to preach all those things we really love in the Psalms. I love preaching Psalm 23. I love preaching Psalm 46. I have a stack of sermons on Psalm 46. I love preaching all those great things from Psalm 119. I love all of those things. But you know what we've done this summer is we've taken the Psalms that have been given to us from the lectionary each week. And for the preacher, what that means is you don't get to cherry-pick the psalm you want to preach because it makes you feel good. You get what's given to you in the Word of God. And you deal with the Word of God. And so that's what we're going to do today. Now, last week we were reminded that God has rescued us. He has rescued us from whatever we encounter in the midst of whatever we encounter, and that in whatever we encounter, we need to go on record with God about what God has rescued us from. And so we remember Psalm 30, I will exalt you, Lord, for you rescued me. So a very important question for all of us is is this, what has God rescued you from? That's the path of praise. If you want to know, if you don't have anything to praise God for, ask the question, what has God rescued me from? And that's where you go with your praise. But that question, what has God rescued me from, is insufficient. It is not enough. If that's all we ask, if all we ask is, God, what have you rescued me from? We will be tempted to allow our faith and to see our faith as simply about ourselves. And simply about our own spiritual preservation. And simply about me clicking my ticket to get to heaven. So there's another question to ask this week that I mentioned last week. And the question is this. What has God rescued you for? What has God rescued me from? And what has God rescued me for? Which brings us back to Psalm 82 as a go-to psalm for all of us. Now, now let's just get into this psalm to help us understand what's actually happening here. To do that, you need to imagine something that's different for us. You need to imagine a room that's a big room in the cosmos, a big courtroom in the cosmos, 
that's filled with a place where the gods, small g, preside. And everything in life in this world is dependent on how the gods get along and how the gods use people. And and really, mostly, it's how the gods misuse people and treat them as less than human. I want you to imagine living in that kind of religious culture around you, and you would then be able to imagine the world the psalmist was writing to. Because the world he was writing to, including the Israelites, included the influence strongly of polytheism. So so the psalmist is creating a word picture for the people that he's writing to to make a point. So in this metaphorical courtroom in the cosmos, now enters the honorable judge, the Lord God of the universe. And in this strong psalm, we learn something about what we are rescued for as we see the gods of idol worship placed on trial. All rise. The honorable judge, the Lord God of the universe, is now presiding. Let the court be in session. Would you stand with me as we read the word of God together? Psalm 82. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth. For all the nations are your inheritance. May God bless his word to us. You may be seated. So what is happening in this courtroom, this cosmic courtroom. Well, let's start with this thought. Our worship must be connected to not only this God who reigns, but our worship must be connected to God's plan for the world. If our worship is not connected to God's plan for the world, we're not truly worshiping him. So we begin there to understand this psalm, a psalm that features a clear and present declaration of the reign of Almighty God. Look what it says in verse 1. God presides in the great assembly. So it's kind of like an in-your-face, the psalmist is like in-your-face to those polytheistic worshipers and saying, just want you to know that the Lord God Almighty is, is entering in and he's in charge of it all. He's saying that right up front. So this psalm confronts an individualized focus that is an individualized religious focus that is an exercise in the preoccupation with the self. The worship is very individual. It is never to be individualized. I'm getting a lot of echo here, guys. I don't know. Let me, say, let me try something. 
the great God is presiding. Let's get some more echo there. That'd be awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I need one of those really deep voices. So, through wor- though worship is very individual, it is never intended to be individualized. Though worship is inspiring, it is never intended to entertain. Though worship meets a deep need, it is not intended to focus on what we want. And so when worship is simply left to how it makes me feel, what kind of experience I benefit from, or what I can get out of it, if if worship is just about that, then worship becomes idolatrous. And it blinds me from seeing God's plan for the world and for others. So this psalm speaks to that. Because whenever and wherever God's kingdom does not reign, the gods, small g, are alive and well. You see, what I love about Psalm 82 is this. It's not written by a king. It's not even written by a well-known prophet or some very prominent priest. It's written by a choir director. Psalm Asaph. Psalm Asaph, this choir director. See, this choir director knew the reign of God and the worship of God must lead to partnership with God in his plan for all mankind. And so he begins. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. God is the rightful judge. But I want you to notice something very specific about the understanding of God's judgment. Very important that we get this. His understanding of justice confronts us in the second verse. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? You see, in the metaphorical courtroom, this question addresses the motivation behind the idol worship. And what the psalmist is doing is the psalmist is actually, through this cosmic image, He's actually addressing the judges of that day and and their failure to do what was right and their failure to abuse their power and their privilege at the expense of others. And it really speaks to us today. Because when you start unearthing the primary motivations of the gods, this is what the primary motivation of the gods of idol worship in any age The primary motivation is self-preservation, self-protection, self-promotion, self-satisfaction. It's all about appearance and control and power and status. That's what the psalmist is writing to. And all of that is the focus outside of God's reign. And when that's the focus, when that's the focus, whether that's the focus of an individual's life or the focus of a government, the focus of of a family, or the focus of a business. When it's all that focus, self-preservation, self-promotion, self-satisfaction, appearance, control, power, it destabilizes everything. And the psalmist is saying, this approach by these judges is destabilizing the world. He says this, the gods know nothing, they understand nothing, they walk about in darkness All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Now around us, centuries later, 
we see the prophetic truth of these words. We see the chaos around our world when the reign of God is not in place. We see what injustice does. And primarily, primarily, it involves the way human beings are viewed and treated as less than made in the image of God. Because these gods, remember, remember the, the, what's happening. Remember the backstory of this psalm. He's writing this image because that's part of their worshiping culture. It's not ours, but his is, you know, there's all these gods that are pulling the strings on the world to see what they can get out of the people. So that's what's behind this. Clinton McCann said, the so-called gods are still with us in many forms. Wherever and whenever some persons benefit by denying the God-given humanity of the other person. That's a strong one. The judges of Israel were benefiting at the expense of others. And so what does that say to me? And I have rewritten this question over and over and over this week. What does it say to Jeff about any gods I may be worshiping? Anything I choose to make a priority for my benefit while denying someone else dignity of being human. How many things do I benefit from at the expense of someone else's humanity? Dr. Jesse Middorf is a retired general superintendent of Church Nazarene, and he recently made this kingdom statement. When political expediency supersedes love of neighbor, cultural and political relevance reigns. When racial prejudice and cultural bias, whether conscious or unconscious, is tolerated, even fostered in the church, cultural and social relevance reigns. When the economic benefit of the few is valued above the welfare of the many, oppression reigns. When moral norms are rejected and disregarded as a relic of the repressive past, moral confusion reigns. When any of these and other cultural norms reign, Christ is dethroned and chaos is inevitable. So the answer, the antidote, is not guns and bombs. It's not walls and detention centers. It's not communism versus capitalism. It is not casting off moral restraint. The answer is in the humble surrender of our self-centeredness, our self-protection, our inveterate self-absorption to the sovereignty of Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the answer to the chaos of this world. Jesus Christ is Lord. This is how Scripture puts it. Paul writes these words. For even if there are so-called gods, even if there are, he's saying really they're not, but even if there are, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So you see, God has a specific plan for the gods, small g. We find that in verse 7. It says this, Psalm 82, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. You see, God wants to deny infinite priority to the finite gods. 
He wants to displace their power. And he wants our lives to give a death blow to other gods. There's one thing we say in the Christian church over the centuries that addresses this. When we repeat these words from the creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We are saying that we believe in a different kind of world. We are saying we believe in a world where God reigns. We are putting to death the ideas and the idols that destroy the world around us. Better said this way, when God reigns over our lives and we declare his reign with our lives, we seek to make his kingdom a reality now through our lives. And so now this psalm is not just one I come in contact with. This now needs to inform the living in the daily cycles of my life. The cycles of idol worship that destroy God's prized creation, human life. For when we seek God, the most high God, we begin to take on his view of the world. And when we take on his view of the world, we then find ourselves called with God in seeking to make all things right in the world. And that is the good news of the gospel in this psalm. This psalm reminds me that God desires to make everything right. That's God's heart. That's his ultimate judgment. And our faith in Jesus reminds us that God has begun this already in the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's entered in this great project. So what does it look like for me to partner with God? What am I saved for? Well, here's a good start. Are you ready? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Now let's remember the context. Remember, he is writing this. He is, this is the courtroom where he's judging judges, leaders, people who are mistreating people who are not seeing people as made in the divine image. According to the Bible, what we've read, and over and over and over again in Scripture, justice is directly connected to the weak, the orphan, the lowly, the destitute, and the needy. There are at least 282 references in the Bible to the weak, the fatherless, the poor, the oppressed, and the needy. You need to know how much that's just impacting me right now how does that truth impact me in this world let me share with you an example of a very current reality hang with me through it just hang with me what does this passage do for me when i see the tragedy at the southern border of this country hang with me most people I know are weary of the politicizing of this by politicians and media. Both Republicans and Democrats have seized this for political expediency. They have made hay in media sound bites, all sides. It's been very frustrating for me. 
and trying to drill down to what's really going on because we don't know from what we see. But let's be clear. From the kingdom point of view, those people at the border are made in the image of God. All the people at the border, whether it is a border patrol agent or a migrant, they're all made in the image of God. Let's get that. What does this psalm say to me about how I, a follower of Jesus, should view those in crisis at the border? Now, I know this is a very complex issue. And anyone who stands on TV or stands at some political pundit pulpit and says, gives you some easy solution is wrong. It's complex. It's difficult. I get that. But this is what I know is not complex. Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So how does God's view of justice, making all things right among the least, how does that inform my view about a number of things? How does that inform my view of the southern border? How does that inform my view of the termination of life in the womb at full term? How does that inform my view of the person caught up in the raging opioid crisis? How does that inform my view of the guy named Norm who begs for money near my Starbucks? How does that inform my view of the crowded prison system? How does that inform my view of racial inequities? How does that inform my view? Again, please with me, set aside the CNN or Fox News lens. Set aside the view that is fueled by the Democrat and Republican enemy-making machine. Because see, to win, you've got to have an enemy. This psalm defines justice for us in terms of human life as God intends. And God intends that all human life made in his image, should be defended and flourish. That's what God says. So this psalm defines for us justice in terms of the sanctity of human life. Not a political football to kick around. So which again begs the question, what have you been rescued for? What have I been rescued for? You see, it's not just about what we are saved from someday. It's not just about what we should not do. You better not do this and be a good Christian. It's it's not really, but what are we saved for? Part of the work of God's grace, now let's get this clear, we are saved by grace. Amen? With me? But part of the work of God's grace in that same passage we quote on that in Ephesians 2, part of the work of God's grace in us is the work of God's grace through us. And so we hear this in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. For we are God's handiwork, really translated, we are God's poeme, we are God's poem, we are God's work of art, we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And at the heart of God's grace through us is God's desire to put all things to rights in the world. That is our great Christian hope. If you're a Christian... You know what your greatest Christian hope is? It's not heaven. Hey, I'm 
I'm a, I just you need to know, I believe in heaven, can't wait to be there someday. Not, not this morning. Not right, right, not right this moment. At least let me finish this sermon. Then I'll go to heaven. But our great Christian hope isn't trying to get to heaven. Our great Christian hope is that we have a great God who's going to make all things right where heaven and earth are joined together. And in a way that the revelation just has a hard time describing, and in a way I have a hard time grasping, there's going to be this world where this prophet Isaiah says they're going to, they're going to take their weapons and they're going to turn them into plowshares. You know? So what kind of world is that going to be? I don't know. I've never lived in that world, but I hope to someday when he makes all things right. So the great Christian hope is that. Listen to what it says in Colossians. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And it goes on to say how he did that, by making peace through the blood of the cross. That the cross of Jesus Christ isn't just about taking care of my sin problem, it's about taking care of the world's sin problem. It's about repairing the beautiful creation that God has made, restoring it, being made right. So it's not just heaven to gain and hell to shun, though I believe in a heaven to gain and I believe in a hell to shun. But it's not just that, but it's about a world made right as this is intended to be. And so the most gospel-centered verse in this entire psalm is the last one. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. And I say, yes, God. Man, I look out at the world, I say, yes, God, rise up. Make things right. Put the world to rights. By your rule and grace, your mercy and love, your holiness and justice, make all things right. It's not going to be done by power and politics. It's not going to be done by economics. But rather, it's going to be done by the God, the judge of the earth. In those words, don't we also hear the very echo of the prayer Jesus taught us to pray? I had the privilege today of partnering, serving with um, Miss Mary Hardwick with children today at the 9 o'clock hour. We were, you need to come there, if you, adults too. If you, you, you don't want to go to the journey, adult journey group, come over to the kids' journey group. You, we have balloons there, man. You, just, you know what our study was today? The Lord's Prayer. So that prayer that Jesus taught us, remember, this psalm echoes these words. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to pray God's reign will take over everything. We are to pray that God's reign will take over everything now. We are to live in his kingdom now in the already towards what it is yet to be. What is his kingdom yet to be like? Well, you know those words from Revelation. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Here's another part that's also part of the final judgment when all things are made right. Remember this part from Matthew 25? And when you did it to one of the least of these, you were doing it to me. That's all part of his making it right. 
So how do I live towards that? How do I live towards a world where every tear is wiped from their eyes? How do I live towards that on earth as it is in heaven? I think N.T. Wright captures this better than anyone I've ever read. He says, we are to live as people who believe in the resurrection and God making a whole new world out of which everything will be set right at last. A people who are unstoppably motivated to work for that new world in the present. It's not saying at all that we don't believe that God someday is going to come and make all things right, absolutely. It's not saying that we're the ones who are going to do all that work in our own strength, no. But in relationship with Jesus Christ, who makes us right, we are the people more than any people in all the world who have to be unstoppably motivated to reveal God's justice to the world. God's making things right. And Scripture calls us to that. In 2 Corinthians 5, he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us, shouting to the world, be reconciled to God. As I said, this this isn't going to happen by stuff that we can dream up. This can only happen by the grace and the mercy and the power of the Spirit of God in the lives of his followers. Where the world looks on and says, hmm, I want that. And they follow and find our Savior Jesus Christ who makes their world right. It it doesn't start, and brothers and sisters, don't point your finger out there and say they need to get it right. And don't point your finger at someone else in the church and say they need to get it right. Start here. Because that's where God's work starts. He makes us right. And then when he makes us right, when he puts us to right, we then can be his representative in the world. And so yes, a thousand times yes, verse 8, rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. And may we, as the followers of the one who reigns, paraphrasing David Fitch, may we rise up with God and wherever we face injustice and evil in the places we live and work, in the school hallways, the government centers, and the church sanctuaries, may we live as ambassadors of God, announcing with our lives that God does reign, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that God is working in this world to transform it and people in it. His kingdom is to come now. His kingdom is here already through Jesus. We have been rescued from sin, and we now invite him to reign over our hearts, and we have been rescued for partnership with him in his work in the kingdom, especially among the least of these. What a psalm. The courtroom is adjourned. The gods have been sentenced to death. And it is our very lives that will carry out that sentence on the ideas and the idols that end up hurting people. So that the world might live. So that people might live in and through and with the Lord God, Jesus Christ, who reigns 
both now and forevermore, and has begun making all things right. Already and in the yet to be. May we join him. May we join him in that. How? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Amen. Our worship team is going to come. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we want to thank you today for your word. As we prayed, Lord, at the start, may we not bend, our li- bend the word around our lives for what we want it to be. May we not bend the scriptures so that it fits into our own idol worship. But may we instead, Lord, bend our lives around your word. Psalm 82 is just one example. But through your entire story, through this entire inspired word of God, may we bend our lives around your word so that we would be made right each one of us, and that through us the world will find a God who wants to make them right. Oh God, may it be so we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to stand this morning. We're done worshiping. But our worship must connect us to God's plan. So now, my friends, let us go and partner with the Lord God Almighty, the judge of everything. Let us partner with him and reveal to this world Jesus Christ, his grace, his love, his mercy, his holiness, his goodness, his salvation. For there is no one, no other name, by which the world can be saved, but through Jesus. So let us reflect him to our world. Let us go in his peace. God bless you. Greet one another in Jesus' name.